but I do recall like their, uh, I'll not use the group's name, but the group, very wonderful group. Uh, and they, they had a oncology uh, track going on, let's just say. And um, they really needed speakers for palliative oncology. And the person that they wanted to do it said, is a friend of mine, um, who's an MD, said, I'll do it, but like I can talk about one thing. And he says, I know these two naturopathic doctors who do this every day. Why don't you have them come and do it? And they're like, no, can't you just do it? Like, cause it just, they didn't really feel like integrative oncology and putting a naturopath in there was a good idea. Probably for many reasons. I, it was not personal. It was just sort right, of, you right. know. And I remember the, you know, when we both, the other doctor and myself, and then and then our, the MD who sort of championed us being there, and he literally did come in. Uh, so he was he was the headliner, <laughs> and and he did his one topic, which he's really good at, and he did well. And then he was like, these guys are going to do the rest. And it was it was a lot of material. Um, and both of us that he had recommended just happened to come from kind of the same way of thinking. Uh, and we both present so much data with the stuff that we're doing that by the second day of it, that most of the walls had come down. Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. Dr. Goodyear here again with the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. You are going to love our guest today. I mean, I don't, and I don't use these words lightly. Dr. Paul Anderson is a pioneer. And I want to touch on what that means in just a second. But the reason why it's important to recognize people that have blazed trails is because they have really done a lot of the hard work. They've really, you know, just set forth a path that all of us that can come behind them can actually really help continue on the work that they've done. Now, Dr. Paul Anderson is not done by any stretch, <laughs> not by any stretch, but he is still at this point a pioneer. So I wanna, I wanna you know, focus on the future. And the way we do that is we have to recognize, there's a great quote from Seth Godin, I quote a lot, where they, he mentions what education does well today is collecting the dots, but what education does a very poor job of is connecting the dots to the future. And of course, Steve Jobs talks about how you can't get, connect the dots by to look forward only if you look backwards. So the point is we must know where we've come from. We must know our past, the connection of those dots, the data points, and then from that, take that to the future. So on that, I want to introduce Dr. Paul Anderson. Um, he's a a naturopathic doctor, but I've been following Dr. Paul Anderson for a long time. I uh, almost feel like I've been a little bit of a groupie, so I, you know, it's, I'm, I'm a little geeked out here. So, but, um, so the word pioneer, you know me, I love words, I love the historical context of, pi um, 
of words. And the word pioneer, it literally means foot soldier. It comes from old French words, 16th century. But it means a person who goes or does something first. And when, when, when people go and do something first, they do the hard work. They do the hard labor. They do the difficult stuff nobody will do. And interestingly enough, you know, my oldest daughter lives in Scotland, so I've got to <clears throat> provide those Scottish roots. It was actually originally published in the Accounts of the Lord High Treasure of Scotland. So there you go, daughter. Love you, sweetheart. <clears throat> Anyways, so um, now when we look at the Americas, the word pioneer has a little bit of a different context. And you, when you look at it, we, we kind of contextualize it to the wild western frontier. So when you look at people like Billy the Kid, Buffalo Bill, Davy Crockett, Wild Bill Hickok, Butch, Butch Cassidy, Jesse James, Wyatt Earp, and even Annie Oakley and Calamity Jane, <laughs> people would call these pioneers. But they also called them settlers, ranchers, cowboys, outlaws, and even gunslingers. So Dr. Paul Anderson, which are you? <laughs> You're clearly a trailblazer, I, a pioneer. I, I've been a little of all those. <laughs> you have. You actually have. Well, thank you, by the way. And, and I, I do, I do want to say um, I, I appreciate the word pioneer. And obviously, I couldn't have done what I've done without the people who came before, who I think, you know, going back, uh, a number of years, tried as many things as they could and figured things out up to the point that, you know, we were able to in those days. And, and a lot of my work has been to try and take all of that and move it forward uh, to the degree that we can, you know, and, and keep track of what we're doing and all of that. So, yeah. And you've definitely advanced that. I mean, your career, <clears throat> which like I said, is, is still actively ongoing, you've really served as a, a means of a bridge between naturopathic medicine, conventional medicine, but that bridge has been science. It mm -hmm. has been evidence. Mm -hmm. And I think what you've done in this world, particularly with cancer and in many other areas, mm -hmm. you've done what so many can't do and so many conventional doctors don't do, which is and this is what I admire so much about you, is you've always led with the evidence. Hmm. Not just you've led with the evidence, but you actually added to the science. And you've been involved with research, you know, as far back as I've followed you. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted you to highlight some of your career because you, you've, mm -hmm. like I said, you've been involved with <clears throat> much of this from the beginning. Yeah, that's, um, you know, I think the, idea of leading with the evidence, leading with the science comes from a number of things. One is uh, doing the best medicine, you know, yeah. trying to have as much information as you can. Another is, uh, to a degree, protecting your patient and yourself because, as we both know, uh, you do anything integrative and there might be some of the other doctors that are great with it and some that are very not great with it. Um, and what I started to see over time, because as you also know, um, in our world, not everybody agrees about everything. And so uh, I just found it, it sort of greased the wheels a lot more if I led with evidence, because 
if I had a real cantankerous colleague who didn't want to buy in. Do, or, do those exist? <laughs> uh, I've met a lot of them. I'm sure you have too. And and and, and let's say it's, you know, the, let's say their primary care is sort of ambivalent and their specialist is not ambivalent and, and kind of negative. Generally, what I started to find was if I if I put the literature together as to why I was doing what I was doing, and then and sometimes there's explanation of also clinical experience, and I would send that to them, only two things happened. One would be uh, you'd find an open-minded specialist who literally I've had them say, I didn't even know there was data on this. Like I've never I've never seen this. Uh, and that's kind of impressive that you're doing something based on some data, uh, or they literally never talk to you again, and so they become a non-issue. Yeah. Right now, what they say behind your back is a whole other thing. But it's like once you say, okay, you know, data is always imperfect, but this is why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, this is the history and the background we have with it, and the patient, you know, is on board and they they understand, you yeah. know, that it is what it is. Um, they either, and, and I don't know what the, it's a small ratio. I don't know what the ratio of the open-minded ones who said, gee, I, that's great. Can we talk more about that? But that's happened more and more over time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think what probably started out as just protecting myself, maybe legally or whatever, uh, and also explain, because I teach so much explaining to students and, and, and student could be a medical stu school student or, I also started, uh, as you had mentioned, uh, doing a lot of physician training that then started to cross over into the, the, the allopathic integrative world. Um, and I certainly wasn't the first person doing that, but it was, I, there was a small number of us. And I, I have a uh, is emergency medicine doc friend who uh, now does integrative medicine and he was telling me once years after the first time he had heard me at a, an MD oriented meeting. He says, I was just about to walk out of the room because it was one of those where we were alternating speakers. Because I thought, a nature path, gosh. And he says, in the first 10 minutes, you presented so much research behind what you were going to talk about. I thought, well, this guy might know what he's, he's doing. <laughs> he says, so I stayed and it was really enlightening because I never would have expected this. And so, so that's the sort of thing that's happened over time. And, you know, what it evolved to was, you had mentioned, so the, the NIH-funded research that we had at Bastyr was human uh, interventional trial with integrative oncology. Yeah. And that wasn't its name, but that was the idea of it. Um, and because we were trying to be as integrative as possible, it had all different sections, so we had... Uh, psychology and mind-body and we had dietary things and uh, Chinese medicine available and it's just this whole smorgasbord of of options and they they wanted to include IV therapy uh, but they realized it was kind of tricky uh, so I was already faculty so they brought me into the program to provide that part um, <clears throat> which was really really cool but because we were research partners with the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, which includes University of Washington and Seattle Children's and SCCA, the, all, all, the whole bunch, um, immediately my area being the IV area would pretty much be the only area that would ever be questioned. 
you know, because I, th I think the referring people from UW, et cetera, would say, well, what's it going to hurt if they get nutritional counseling or acupuncture or, or they see the psychologist or whatever, you know, we, we can wrap our heads around that. You get over to IV therapy and it was like, we're not wrapping our heads around that, you know. <laughs> uh, so I immediately, you know, had to start interacting with the oncologist because we were literally sharing patients and were part of, you know, a, a federally funded research trial. And <clears throat> what I found that uh, led to a lot of the things that probably about the time you maybe became aware of what I was doing, um, what I found was I started to do what I was doing in private practice on a grander scale to put research together. We're doing a lot of high dose vitamin C and other IVs. Yeah. High dose vitamin C was the most contentious thing we were doing at the time yeah, uh, because they didn't understand the other stuff anyway. <laughs> so, but they knew IV vitamin C, probably bad. That's the only association they had with it. So I started to put research packets together for different chemotherapies and, and vitamin C research with it, which turned out to be most of it's very positive as far as it's synergistic and nobody knew that or, or nobody believed it. So then I would start to send these, uh, these research summaries and because we'd customize it to whatever chemo the patient was on. And that was when I would also get feedback. So some of the oncologists, uh, one, one of, so this is, there's many hospitals involved in this. One chief of oncology literally said, I didn't even know there was research about this. And I've been an oncologist a long time, but this is compelling and I would have no problem sending patients to you. That's I almost that's fell honest. off my chair. Yeah. 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 Now his next colleague would send patients and literally tell them I was going to kill them. So not all were as open as, you know, so, and, and <clears throat> you know, and so the, this sort of data collection thing, you know, cause as you know, it's, it's not easy and it takes time and you've got to do a lot of looking and, and, uh, and then keep track of what you're finding. Um, it just sort of took on a life of its own through that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of it was then to do a couple of big things. One is yes, protect the patients and also communicate with the oncologist. But then also we were really looking at what can we do to make this process even better for the patient's body? You know, cause I mean, really it's about the patient in the end Novel anyway, concept, right? Huh? Yeah, it's like all the other stuff is about politics and what can we do to make it better for the patient? So then some of the, uh, and you know, just to be completely fair about the research group, it was a, like I said, a lot of different sections in the integrative oncology world. We had two PIs, one was on the UW side and one was on our side, uh, who were great. And then there were all these specialty people in it and I was one section. Um, so at the end of it, because our first metric was, uh, was survival. So we would look at did our people who were doing, and they would be doing maybe standard of care and seeing us, or sometimes they were told, well, there's no more standard of care and they would see us. So we, it was all comers kind of thing. But we basically looked at, okay, for apples to apples, uh, stage four colon cancer in our group, stage four colon cancer in the SEER database or, or a bigger database, uh, we know what their survival is and we would map out what, what our Kaplan-Meier survivors were. And uh, one of our PIs, Dr. Standish, presented that at the SIO 
think 2013 or 14. And Medscape, which is traditionally not a very integrative, friendly um, news outlet, actually wrote a very nice kind of almost glowing thing about, wow, this looks like this might be a helpful thing, this integrative oncology, which I saved because <laughs> that was like, wow. Um, so, so that was sort of a, that was a, a really uh, nice thing to see. We did find generally if we compared uh, and, and we did real personalized medicine for the patients uh, that most of our, and I only got stage four patients, the other groups would get the stage one, two, and three folks. But for high, uh, kind of high level intervention like IV and injections, they felt like stage four is what we should reserve that for, which in private practice, I wouldn't do that. But right. for research, it makes sense. After a while, it made sense. So, um, so that was, that was kind of cool. And then another thing, um, and there were many things that came out of that, but another thing that came out of it was really early on, we were looking at, is there a way to make like the chemistry of your patient more, um, more unaffected by high dose vitamin C? Cause I'd been doing high dose vitamin C for a long time and I'd seen uh, people <clears throat> having electrolyte shifts and other things that happen. So one nice thing with, with humans and a research project is once you consent them to what you're doing and it, as long as they accept, but my whole group of stage four people were great. They, they would let me do anything. Um, I said, well, what I want to do is you're still going to get your regular IV at the regular dose, but I'm going to draw your blood before and after, and I'm going to alter the formulas. Um, and most of them didn't even want to know why, but I, I just said, look, I think there's a way to do this the where your body actually accepts the vitamin C even better, like in a more neutral manner. Um, and so that involved, you know, hundreds of data points and iterations over time. And what we came up with was a way to give high dose vitamin C without it being uh, inhibited, because there's some things you don't put with high dose vitamin C because it might inhibit it, but uh, that also almost had no change in the baseline electrolytes of the patient before and after, which then is a surrogate marker for how did it shift all the other things inside of them. Uh, and, and I actually presented that at SIO in 2011 or 12 um, to not a whole lot of fanfare. There just, you know, pe people... <laughs> no standing ovations? No, people, uh, people who did IV vitamin C didn't want to have to change their mind and those who didn't were like, whatever, you know. <laughs> but that part is actually taken on a life of its own because it's sort of, it's, it's had its own, you know, I guess nowadays we'd say it sort of went viral, right? Yeah. It, 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 uh, it started to spread and creep and uh, because we had, we had good hard data and I could show that with the old way we were doing it, which was great because it was kind of a pure formula and everything, people on the other end had pretty wild electrolyte imbalances, which could either make them anxious or shivering or headaches or many, many other things, right? So with the new one, all that stuff went away. And we would even people with, uh, you know, like AFib uh, that would convert during the high-dose vitamin C. High yeah, and, and of course, three hours later it would be back, but, but the electrolytes were so level that, that the AFib would go away. Wow. It was, it was pretty wild. Yeah. And I, 
I was presenting that once at a conference and there was a cardiologist there and and he was an older cardiologist. He said, yeah, he says, you know that formula that you have, like not the vitamin C, but he says the way you shift the electrolytes, we used to do that with uh, dysrhythmias in the hospital all the time, uh, just with a little bit of a different twist. So he says it makes total sense that it would calm down a dysrhythmia. You know, whereas before we were having people with aggravating dysrhythmias and stuff. Yeah. So I thought, well, it's, if there's a way to do that and then the body is not in a stress state, so it's going to be able to accept the vitamin C and do what it needs to do. Um, it's just a lot of little things that came out of it like that, that, um, uh, like I said, that's been presented at SIO and uh, we're still hoping to get that published at some point. Um, well, when you do, because I was sitting here thinking, I hadn't read that paper and I'd love to read it because, you know, there's, <clears throat> we always have an opportunity to learn. And in fact, what I, tell, what I tell my staff, what I tell my patients is, look, when I think I know it all, it's time to tell me to retire because right. that's when <laughs> things start to get dangerous. Yeah, yeah. You know, you... <laughs> <laughs> True. You know, we have to, <clears throat> have to swallow my pride again here, forgive me. Um, but, you know, you really changed to my perception on naturopathic physicians because... My exposure to them, this is, this is sad but true. At the time when I went through my residency in Tennessee, the only, my only contextualization of naturopathic medicine was that on the books in Tennessee, naturopathic physician, it was, it was illegal to practice. Right. Yeah. And so that was my only contextualization. I had no idea. Right. Right. So then when I hear you talk science, so then when I hear you do research, when I right. see you publish papers, when I see you write books, when I see you teach, you basically, you were a scientist slash teacher slash physician, right. and you really opened my eyes to what, what it means to be a holistic practitioner. And did, did you ever see yourself in that light at all? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, and I mean, uh, I think it evolved over time where I started to realize, well, that was probably going on, you know. Yeah. But no, I didn't sit down one day and say, I, I'm going to do this. Uh, it, it literally grew, which I think is the best way for things to grow clinically from uh, clinical practice, trying to do the best for my patients learning a lot, both good and hard lessons, you know, yeah, as you do, <clears throat> and then building on that. And then at the point where that was a bit more matured and I'd learned a lot of pluses and minuses, uh, that was about the time of my career when I, when I was also then doing the research. So then you're not only doing that same process, but you're keeping track of what's happening and you're watching, you know, all the things you need to watch. So that really just evolved over time. I mean, <clears throat> I was um, to show, now I think in my mind at that point, I, I probably thought, well, you know, because I, I was starting to speak in more broad groups, more MDDO oriented groups. And so I was, I, I think I probably thought, well, this is, that's the direction things are going. Um, but I do recall like there, uh, I'll not use the group's name, but a group, very wonderful group, uh, and they, they had a oncology uh, track going on, let's just say. And um, they really needed speakers for palliative oncology. And 
the person that they wanted to do it said, is a friend of mine, um, who's an MD, said, I'll do it, but like I can talk about one thing. And he says, I know these two naturopathic doctors who do this every day. Why don't you have them come and do it? And they're like, no, can't you just do it? Like, cause it just, they didn't really feel like integrative oncology and putting a naturopath in there was a good idea. Probably for many reasons. I, it was not personal. It was just sort right, of, you right. know. And I remember the, you know, when we both, the other doctor and myself, and then and then our, the MD who sort of championed us being there, and he literally did come in. Uh, so he was he was the headliner, <laughs> and and he did his one topic, which he's really good at, and he did well. And then he was like, these guys are going to do the rest. And it was it was a lot of material. Um, and both of us that he had recommended just happened to come from kind of the same way of thinking. Uh, and we both present so much data with the stuff that we're doing that by the second day of it, that most of the walls had come down. You know, there were some people that were a little prickly, but, but mo and it was a big audience. Most of the audience was like, oh, you guys kind of do know what you're talking about, you know? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of those things that I've, I think it's just timing. Like my career here at a certain point, and especially with the research that, that was about the time when some of the, you know, broader, you know, non-naturopathic groups started to open up and say, we need, we need more, you know, more expertise and specialists, maybe even from outside of our profession here. And you, <laughs> and you've really, you really opened doors and, you know, got to hear you speak down in uh, Bayou de Bravo. See, I pronounced that right, so there you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> first time we I, did that, I butchered it. <laughs> I, I'm still butchering it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so this is for our crew that's filming this. They, they laughed every time I tried to speak, uh, say those words. But then, so they're talking about, you know, IPT and then here talking about, you know, laser applications. Right. And I, I didn't realize your history was, yeah. you know, was in that arena even before you got into right. medicine. And then, you know, what I'd really like you to do is, is, is touch how your history and I loved how you said you, you conduct chemistry class with your grandkids at home. I thought you had me about rolling out in, in yeah. the aisle. But is your youngest grand, grandchild that uh, won't take part in that uh, lecture? Is that it? Yeah, but she's also two. So oh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't hold her to a real high. Uh, yeah, she's, it's her personality too, though. Okay. She, how many grandkids you got? We, we have uh, seven. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That is fantastic. It's a lot of... A lot of grandkid energy, so yeah, oh, yeah, and and they're all pretty curious. So like some things will just naturally come up, and I'll, I'll if if they're really asking questions, I'll go right into it with them, you know, and the, like the molecular structure of curcumin, right? I'll <laughs> I'll tell them whatever they need to know, you know. It's <laughs> oh boy, I can, I can I can see that. <laughs> but you touch you touched on something that I think our audience probably has not heard of, that has been a ongoing use in your clinic and across the world is the use of laser in, in photodynamic theory, therapy, but also in photobiomodulation. Yeah. And, and that's what you really, you really mm -hmm. spoke on. So it, it, I really like you to present what photobiomodulation is because I, and you probably recognize this, for most people they go, photobio what? Exactly, and yeah. 
So, you know, what, yeah. what is that? How does that apply to cancer treatment integratively? And does it mm -hmm. have, because I think this is another way to bridge a gap, does it have application even with conventional? Because I think it clearly does. I Yes, yeah. I'll, if I don't talk about that, bring me back to it. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think for context, um, something as, as I look backwards, which is you were saying in the beginning, the Steve Jobs quote, you know, you, you do have to look backwards to see how things lined up to get you where you are. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes you plan those, and in my life, most time, that was not planned. It's just one thing led to another. Um, and I can tell you that back, uh, you know, 30 to four. So I, I got my first laboratory job in that world in 1976. Okay. So that was a while ago. So if you go from 76 to let's say the late eighties, um, all of that work, I just thought, well, this is something I'm interested in pays the bills, and then that led to really the first sort of research use of, of light as it, what I was doing was not so much light as therapy, um, but it's all the same physics. It's, it's, the mechanics are exactly the same. Yeah. And so, um, but that was the first time where I was on a research team, we were trying to solve these bigger problems, where I really thought this is, this is a lot of fun, you know, like the day-to-day -day sort of do another one, do another one was not as much fun. But like when we, you know, I got on a small team and we're trying to solve a very big problem, that was really intriguing and, the, and it taught all of us a, a great deal. Um, and so, you know, that goes on and then other things happen and then um, I, I had through that whole time, I I had been in school and out of school, and I I kept thinking I should apply for medical school. Uh, my father uh, passed away; he's almost a hundred, so he had lived a great life. He he's an allopathic physician, and um, I I just watched him over time and how medicine evolved, and I thought I can't stay in the box that well. Like I can't. Wow. I can't narrow my focus like that. I know I will get in trouble. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, I've gotten in trouble still, but <laughs> well, it's like I, I, if, if I go down that road and, and become, you know, a, a, some specialist or whatever, it'll be great. But like, I, my mind doesn't work that way. And, and back then, you know, if you, you go back that many years, doctors were still kind of trained to think and problem solve and all of that, but you can kind of see it getting narrowed down, right? Yeah. And so I kept not, you know, not applying uh, and just doing these other things. And then eventually um, when I had uh, kind of uh, on the back of the research stuff we were doing with light there or light and which became light therapy later, um, I built my own laboratory, had that running. I was finally, you know, making money. And that was the point at which I told my wife, hey, I think I want to go back and finish medical school. Uh, she's still married to me, which That's is how, good. How, many, a, years? Uh, how uh, many years? 40. That is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That is fantastic. <laughs> the fact that she made it through that, because that was like the most insane time to do that. So the only thing I had going was I was able to sell the lab and everything. And 
uh, and that helped sustain us, you know, through the next years. But that, but I made a decision to go to a naturopathic medical school, and I remember I talked to my dad about it because he was still practicing at the time, and he said, you know, that's probably better for you anyway. He says, and 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 he had sort of evolved. So I remember in the '60s, like he was very anti vitamins and anything natural and all that kind of like everybody else was in those professions but uh he really sort of turned the corner over the next couple of decades and became uh, you know to so that at the end of his career he was he was sort of antagonistic to the allopathic system wow okay. uh and there are many stories would be told there but <laughs> but yeah so so I think that the point of all of this is then that leads to, you know, I'm practicing and I never thought I would, you know, focus on cancer or, or even chronic illness like I do. And because I was, I was really doing primary care and I was in a state in Oregon where I had a very broad license um, and I could, within six months, people started telling their relatives who had cancer you were looking for somebody to do do something non-standard go see this guy so i'd see them and i would say all right well i basically you know i i I knew how to do iv vitamin c i knew these other things i've been trying to get up to speed and there wasn't like if you think about now and then you think about 30 years ago in integrative oncology the, the the amount of knowledge and training is this big like so, in, and it was all sort of underground. Like you, you had to talk to people quietly at conferences. There weren't oncology conferences; they were just conferences where you get together in the corner, kind of bootlegging. Huh? Yeah, and say, uh, <laughs> "What do you do for this?" And, it was like, <laughs> and so, where do you get that? <laughs> or wait, yeah, where do you find this? Or how uh, how do you do that? <laughs> um, so it sort of, and then that just the gates really opened up from there. So that was early practice on. And I think that the the reason I bring that up before going into you know other stuff is I couldn't have sat down and designed some weird you know professional pathway where I was really involved in uh, light uh, light as many things, but including medicine and doing research in that area, and then going back to school and then being a naturopathic physician and then you know, suddenly having cancer and chronic illness be the majority of my practice within a year and a half. And then the learning curve was just really steep there, you know. So I don't, you know, it's like some people plan their lives out really well. Um, I generally just do what I feel the next best step is, but I don't know what that is till the next step comes. But it all colluded together to allow me now to be able to be involved in photodynamic therapy, photobiomodulation, and understand the mechanics of it. Because as you probably know, and we're at a conference with a lot of doctors, one of the reasons I set my lectures up the way I did is I I know what doctors do know, and I also know what they don't know about that world, because why would you know about that? and now that we have all these tools to bring light as medicine together with patients, like the, the connection is you have to understand enough of that science to make it, you know, so that you do the right things with the therapy. Thankfully, you don't have to understand all the rest of it as how, how it got there, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it just, it was one of those things where, you know, an IV was sort of that way for different reasons. And it just, that was a big part of my practice and all. 
Um, so with light as medicine, um, there's um, a couple of important things, I think. And, and, and just to put a little positive point on it, I, I want to almost start at the end and work backwards. I've literally now seen um, very conservative YouTuber, podcaster, medical specialists do in-depth dives into the science behind light as medicine. So you're seeing things shift a little and bit. And I'm seeing, th and, and this is, and I think the, uh, the, there's a couple that I listen to a lot and I'm, I find very entertaining, but they're very smart and they're right on. It's two pulmonologists um, and they do a lot of training uh, and COVID just sort of blew them up because they're pulmonologists. And, yeah. but, and I, I don't know the backstory because I don't know them personally, but they started to, I just started to see, because I was following them for other reasons, you know, and I just started to see, oh, they're talking a lot about melatonin, a lot about vitamin D. That's interesting. It's pulmonologists, all right. Getting really way into it. And then I see this thing about uh, red light therapy. And I thought, you're talking about red light therapy. Wow, so I'm watching these things and looking and, and, and like they're all about it. They're just excited and all this. And, 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 they're talk and, and so if you look at the body of their work, most of it's kind of hardcore pulmonology stuff, but then they've gone down these areas that they, obviously the general allopathic community doesn't do a lot of deep dives there and they just start doing it. Wow. And, and I, I, like, I, someday I would like to know what got them really into that because they do a great job. So um, I think now, and one of the things with like the, the, the universal trauma of COVID in the last few years is it's both sort of closed some people down, but also opened some people up to ideas yeah. that maybe they wouldn't have, you know, thought of before. Okay. So one of the things, and I, I did a, a special podcast just on this topic, but one of, the, and one of the things they did deep dives on, and it was really interesting. And, and again, anything about light, because I, uh, because I know the language of optics and physics, uh, I, I love reading about it. Um, and when they put it with medicines, awesome. So they had. They, I thought I'm a geek, but they, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's pretty geeky, really. It's like, the grandkids aren't there for that yet. But so the, these these guys uh, had um, uh, a preclinical piece. And they were, they, like I said, they'd already done a bunch of stuff about vitamin D and melatonin and other light connections to medicine. But then they, they had this um, in vitro and then animal sort of crossover thing about red light and COVID specifically. And of course they do so much COVID content and so much light content, it was on their radar. And so I looked at it, I got the paper and I read the paper. Um, and I happened to, we had some friends over and it's, it's, it's uh, one of the friends uh, is a, a former uh, laser guy that I knew and he, so he speaks that language. So I let him read it and we're looking at it. And I thought, gosh, I bet no one's ever going to do like a human trial. So we, you know, so we have this great piece of preclinical work and I'm always fine going off of that, but it's real nice if someone does a human trial. Well, sure enough, like, six months later maybe these uh same pulmonologists found a, a trial i think done in the united states in a hospital using uh, a red light vest that they had made themselves 
that so the 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 infrared array was focused on the chest and the back so basically it looks like just a vest right mm. but they made it so um the patient couldn't tell whether it was connected or not so they did a blinded control so people would go in and they would wear this vest twice a day for i think it's 15 minutes in the, and they were in the hospital for COVID. So these are not healthy people, right? Okay, so it's COVID pneumonia. Right, COVID pneumonias, pneumonitis, et cetera. You know, again, stuff that the pulmonologists are all over. And um, and it was uh, single-blinded because the, the operator had to know which they were turning on and off yeah. and all that. But the patient couldn't tell because of the wavelengths. It didn't get warm or anything. And the, the cool thing was is that it... Um, you know, it's one center, all that stuff. But the outcomes with these really sick COVID patients, as far as their pulmonary function and time of stay in the hospital, all the all the good things, were clearly significantly different with the treatment group. And so the sham group didn't achieve any of those things. So it was just the red light. There was just there was IR, no yeah. other photosensitizers. Nope. Nothing. It was it was, and and what I believe and what I think they are inferring is maybe this was some forward-thinking pulmonologists at this hospital, and they had seen this preclinical data and said well, we could we could make one of those. You know, right. if you see the picture of this vest, it truly looks like maybe eighth graders made it. I mean, it's pretty, it's, and, and it, that's probably not fair to whoever made it, but, but it's like, cause, cause he was saying, uh, the, the pulmonologist was like, I know people are going to ask where to buy these. He says they're, they're, they don't exist. Uh, he says they made these themselves, and, right. you know, uh, but, it, but he also really doesn't know about this whole other world of light yeah. medicine. So I think that even with something, you know, as nasty as COVID has been, as traumatic and everything, it's led to stuff like that. And, and, it, and if you look at the data, so my podcast really focused mostly on how would that work and then what does the data actually show? Was it, like, was it worth doing, right? Yeah. Because we had already started doing uh, infrared therapy with post-COVID, uh, spike protein injured, other people in that neighborhood. Right. Um, you know, you get a lot of uh, pelvic sequelae and mm -hmm. we would do pads there. Um, definitely chest um, issues, of course. And then uh, the, the uh, red light helmets and things that we Have you we published that or? No. Okay. No, that's, uh, that's not, <laughs> that's still an evolution. Got it. <laughs> no, Got that's, it. Got that's it. not gone anywhere. Uh, now I just show people that paper about COVID and the vests and and I say this is the same thing. It's yeah. you know, it's a why would your pelvic organs react differently than your lungs would? I mean, there there might be a reason, but probably not. Um, so I think that you know, there's there's a couple of things. Uh, it it so that was the end of really that sort of current. But even if you go back, um, especially I mean, in, in the history of medicine in general, but I think the allopathic side of medicine it really started to fall off. Uh, phototherapies fell off with the exception of dermatology and a little bit of oncology they really fell off you know in the 50s and 60s uh, although dermatologists kept using phototherapies because obviously they're you know that's sort of a logical thing um, in my world in naturopathic medicine that was one of our big cornerstones you know coming from the 1800s through 
uh, you know, the 1950s was a lot of light therapies, and that was just a it was just something everybody did. And, and in our profession, it kind of fell off too. Hmm. But we, as things got modernized, you know, because some of the old light therapy machines just to generate the things weren't the safest things in the world. So, you know, what they did in the 30s, you know, is a little rough. <laughs> so as we got new technology and we, you know, we could get LED arrays that could be tuned to particular wavelengths and, and we could get, uh, you know, light beds and all these other things. I think we were maybe a little more rapid to add that back in because it was part of what we'd been taught. This is a thing. We just don't have the equipment to do it anymore or, or you know, the equipment's so outdated that we, we need something modern. Um, and so I think that, that uh, the fact that like even straight ahead standard pulmonologists you know, are talking about benefits of red light or IR therapy and on COVID patients and other stuff, and now we're seeing, and as you well know, in most, you get outside North America, I've been in Asia, been in Europe, um, other places, it's, there's not the big divide usually right. that we have. Right. So I've been in plenty of hospitals where there's all the standard things and hyperthermia and light therapy and everything going on all at the same time. And, you know, they just have, one of their oncologists who's championing, you know, these other therapies, you know, and, and, and that's how it's done. Right. Um, so North America, a little slower to the table there because it's just medical devices. There's no drug involved usually. Um, but I think that, you know, so when you try, start to talk to people about it, and then if you get to the more, you know, I'll call it modern things like endolaser uh, in a vein or, you know, even yeah, because it can actually be in the vein, it can be into the tumor. It can be into I mean, a tumor any, yeah. anywhere. Um, people d don't generally have a concept that there's, you know, that that would even work or why right. you even do it. It's just light, right? Right, it's just light. <laughs> um, Come to the light. And, and I think, you know, they, I think the, for me, the easiest way to explain it is, Obviously, the you know the visual spectrum is this big, and the electromagnetic spectrum is this big. So there's all this stuff we can't see, but even in this range from where we can't see the color to where we see it, to where we see the other color at the end, and then we don't see it between you know ultraviolet and infrared. Those color bands are also just as much of an energy producer as you know the X-rays over here, or you know, or all the other. Uh, wavelengths. They just do it differently. Right. And so <clears throat> while we all know that we can use x-ray energy to do certain types of therapies, it's a very dangerous therapy potentially if not done exactly correctly, the visible light spectrum is awfully safe <laughs> because cause we're, we're bathed in it all day long, yeah. right? I mean, as long as the machinery modulates it correctly. So um, topical laser uh, and then what we'd call endolaser going inside a vein or, or into a tumor or into a joint or whatever, yeah. it ended anywhere, um, is a way to deliver a particular wavelength that has a particular effect on something about the tissue. So it could be about healing, it could be about supporting normal cells in the area, supporting their mitochondria, which if there are abnormal cells in the area makes it harder on the abnormal cells usually. Uh, it, can, it can be about 
any number of things. And then you get to, and so that's just the light. Then if you mix the light in your blood, <laughs> Um, this is that slide that you the, kept showing over. Yeah, this, you you I, artfully did that well. I did. He, I, had, he had this slide <laughs> that he kept saying it was going to be, I think you referenced kind of nightmares or something like that. But You'd see it in your nightmares. You yeah. artfully got your point across there. It was you, well done. You guys can superimpose that right behind me. It's a, <laughs> yeah, so, so um, there's photodynamic uh, activation, photobiomodulation. There's all these words, but... The idea is if you have either through the thin parts of the skin, like the surface lasers or the IR ones that use as a, a headpiece uh, or other IR topicals, or you put a laser inside of a vein, what happens is that that wavelength then has an interaction with all the parts of your blood, which is super dy dynamic. So there's the cells, white and red blood cells we think of, but you got all a ton of enzymes and clotting factors and all these other things in your blood. Well, they're very sensitive to light. So one of the things I was talking about yesterday was sometimes it's worth just starting and seeing how does the person do with a therapy that is just activating their own blood, you know? Yeah. And then because that synergizes whatever other therapy you're gonna do, you might not need as much of the other therapy. And because everything costs so much money now, it's a great thing, yeah. you know. Um, and, and then the next step of that then is, let's say you wanna go beyond your own blood, you still do the blood part, but you can um, photoactivate a natural substance, certain drugs, uh, and then there's photodynamic drugs specifically that are used in much more specialty situations. Um, but my focus has always been on uh, more on the natural end, although I've done photomodulation with anti-infective drugs and other things we use commonly. But things like curcumin, uh, hypericin, salibinin, a lot of plant-based molecules are also of a structure that uh, certain light wavelengths will make um, more active so that when they get to the tissue, they do whatever they do more quickly. And you, know, you touched on the, I think you touched on uh, stage four breast cancer using patients with uh, mm -hmm. curcumin, hypericin, and photobiomodulation therapy, and how that was having really significant mm -hmm. results in those patients. And I wonder, you know, I love the word modulation mm -hmm. because I love the word immunomodulation. Mm -hmm. Do you think, you know, now that we're understanding more about the tumor microenvironment, our understanding of a metastasis is becoming a little bit more, you know, we're, we're understanding more about it. How do you think this modulation is fitting into this new understanding of the tumor microenvironment and metastasis in terms of what you were seeing in these patients with stage four mm -hmm. breast cancer? Um, yeah, I, th I think it is really critical to you know, start to embrace the idea of, is it's human nature to try and simplify everything, which we all try and do, but often we think of the immune system and we think of boosting it or making it go faster or something like that. And there's certainly times you have to do that. And there's also times where you have to inhibit the immune system because it's just too going too crazy. Right. But let's take those extremes out of the way most of what helps in especially um, metastatic cancer is 
or are things that not only have maybe a direct effect on the tumor or the tumor biology, but also then go around to all of the normal cells, your normal enzyme systems that crosstalk with your immune system, and they actually bring balance back to it. Because in most people, whether you're sort of on the autoimmune side of immune dysfunction or the cancer side of immune dysfunction, there's still just imbalances that your body has for whatever reason sort of decided this is the way we're going to be. Right. And so a lot of natural things uh, like those herbal things we mentioned and melatonin does this and vitamin D and uh, mistletoe does it and all, all kinds of things do it. A lot of them you know, may cause an initial stimulation, but what they're really doing, we believe, uh, down the road that would help with, say, metastases and keeping the cancer quiet and keeping you alive longer is, is to really bring your immune system back to where it has a clear focus on the problem. And a lot of times if you have something like autoimmunity or cancer where the immune system has been so twisted, and especially if you've had other therapies that maybe you know inhibited parts of your immune system or shut it down for a while, you know, like radiation or chemo or something, or or biologic drugs, um, a lot of times then the immune system stays confused. Right. So you get this temporary benefit, and then now you have a confused immune system. So I think you know one of the examples that I I think I used yesterday um, was before. This was when still the research was going on. Uh, so before we had, we had theoretically come on this idea of maybe use a, a bit less of these things and do um, synergistic things together. So a, a bit less, but uh, maybe a herbal extract or natural thing that would then set up the next one for success at a lower dose and maybe do two or three in a row. But prior to that kind of, you know, research you have to, do proof of concept, um, we actually had uh, a um, very unique formulation of curcumin that was sterile for infusion that's not available anymore. And that there's four ways you can stabilize curcumin for infusion, and this is the only one you can do really high doses with safely. There's reasons for that, but that's the bottom line. So we were able to um, infuse very high doses of curcumin in people. So these were um, mostly stage four breast cancer, so body-wide metastases. Yeah. But the, the 15 people in this group, they were beyond that. They had become treatment resistant to all their chemo. Nothing was working anymore. And nothing we were doing was working so there's either. Basically, there was basically, no offer them anything. No, there was no hope. And a lot of them you know, were in a lot of pain because they had bone mets and they had other things. Yeah. So um, we, and, and we had no way of knowing, you know, is this gonna work? And no, no one had really done it before at those doses. But it's a motivated group because if, if, if you're, you know, still wanting to stay here and be on the earth and, and see if you can do something about your cancer um, and everyone said, there's no more we can do, you, you might wanna try something, you know. Yeah, just get a little spicy. Just, just get a little out there. So, so we started to do it and it, and it kind of came in phases because we had to first get a few patients that we were healthy enough with stage four cancer where we could give them these high doses and see 
what what are what are the dangers? Uh, what are the side effects we need to head off before they happen? Right. All those cool things that you learn as you go. Right. And we gave very large doses. Um, but the first two people, uh, things were going really well with them. They were feeling well, and then they were scheduled for imaging uh, a, a bit out, you know, after some infusions. Um, and so then we started telling other people, okay, we, <laughs> our first two are doing okay. We're gonna do the same protocol with you if you want to. It's, we don't have any feedback though on how it's going other than they feel, they feel better. Mm. Um, so I remember pretty clearly the very first uh, woman, she brought her um, imaging back and something I have rarely seen, um, you know, body-wide metastases, especially in the bones, some of her main metastases in the bones actually regressed. Wow. And a couple of them they couldn't see anymore, which is not common. And the radiologist said, uh, positive chemotherapy effect. Now she, was, she, she had failed all chemo at that point, but that's the only way the radiologist could wrap their mind around how this was you know, reversing. Yeah. And that lady, um, you know, for as long as we had access to this type of curcumin and all that, um, you know, I remember talking to her and uh, you know, down, down the road a ways because she kept getting, you know, her scans kept getting better and she was still alive and everything. And she was really, you know, there's, there's stage four and then there's stage four, you know, near the end. These are all people where there was no other option. And I said, you know, I, I, I know because they had to pay for the raw material, but the raw material was pretty darn expensive at those doses. And I said, are, you know, do you want to keep doing this? And uh, she says, are you kidding? It's like, <laughs> you know, have, have you seen my imaging? Uh, you know, she says, I know I'm not going to live forever, but I, this is the only thing that's made this kind of difference. Yeah. And I said, all right, just, just want to be straight up with you. I have no idea where this is going, you know. <laughs> But we started to see that sort of thing over and over. And um, two kind of intersecting uh, things were happening. One was I realized there's, unless somebody, you know, starts a foundation to fund this for everyone with billions of dollars, uh, if that happens, great. But unless that happens, we've got to find more cost-effective ways of getting this effect, right? Right. And so then, you know, before I jumped to what that might be, um, I started to say, well, what in the world, um, you know, would make especially a bone metastasis revert or go away? And so then I started to look much more deeply into the, the biology of, of metastases and the best assessment I can give of why that would happen is that the immunomodulatory effect of that much curcumin forced everything, including the bone marrow and, and the cortical bone and everything, to go back at least to a normal immune function. So it brought it really it, into it an it, equilibrium right, to some state. It kind of brought it back to equilibrium. So you got the initial good effect of all that curcumin, uh, and, and we know there's, you know, acute effects of curcumin on tumors and, and immune stuff. But I think that long-term 
uh, and I, I use the term marinate in, in it as a spice, but yeah. it literally they were getting big doses like that. So then that led to this other idea we kind of had on the uh, the back burner, um, mostly just because I was mostly the only one, you know, whipping up these new ideas, uh, and and I only had so many people helping me. Um, but that was to say, well, what if we had an affordable dose of curcumin? And then we could follow that with an affordable dose of, say, resveratrol and then salivinin or hypericin or something else. That, Because if what I was building up at that point were these monographs about what do they do to the immune system, you know. Because part of the research was, which I don't think this would never be allowed again, but the way the study was written, um, they didn't realize there was going to be an interventional part as big as what I was doing. And so it basically was any anything that uh, you can get from an FDA-approved source and is uh, legal, you you can infuse. So I had I could infuse anything I wanted. I've never had that much freedom, and that all ended. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it like it it kept like the uh, the uh, pointing like they're over here the. the <laughs> The FDA, right? they're they always be. right there. They, they, I think they're outside the window. You know, the, all the agencies were like, oh, well, you, you're under a, a, a NIH study. You've got IRB. You've got approval to do this. You know, the, yeah, they happen to approve a lot, apparently, of what you're doing. But like, so the legalities were cool because yeah. I could call up a compounding pharmacy and say, okay, you, you're indemnified. I mean, unless you give us bad product if you can make this for me. So we started to get resveratrol and experiment with that and all these other things. Um, and so after the research project, I, I've started doing those things more just clinically with patients, but we ran into a problem during the timing of the research project where that was towards the end and um, the, the powers that be sort of saw that we were having a lot of success with certain natural products and uh, there are ways to sort of even though they're say the pharmacy system is indemnified right. there are ways to lean on them and say do you want to lose the other part of your business and still do this or do you want to just not do this and yeah yeah keep going and uh, so so we basically had most of our supply dry up oh. to experiment with um, but that being said were you using photo, uh, photobiomodulation with that? We just the very early, uh, no, no endolaser, none okay. of that sort of okay. stuff. We were doing some uh, uh, IR pads and okay. some other things with people, topical things. Mm -hmm. um, but because it, I'd spent so much time looking into these natural, you know, plant-based extracts that are really drug-like when they're sterile. Um, when then we got the ability to do endolaser and you know the helmets and all the other stuff, it was just the next natural step to say, okay, all we, we know what, what they do and how they push the immune system around, what light wavelengths match up with them, and wouldn't that maybe make them even more efficacious at lower Absolutely. doses, right? So that's been really the next step. There's a lot of that that um, 
obviously we're still sort of working on, you know, that, that research project is over, but clinically there's a lot I'm still working on. And uh, should I have the time as time goes forward, uh, that's really one of the next passion projects I have is actually boiling down because I was already to the point of saying, okay, I can give this much curcumin, you know, like a lot of curcumin, and I know I can do something, but it's, it's, it's impractical long-term. Yeah. And I have the roadmaps for what if I did this much curcumin and this much EGCG or whatever, and I rotated them, and then I uh, photobiomodulated them, you know, with laser. Uh, could we have something that could be afford affordable, you know, doses that are low enough that you're not, you know, there for a whole day getting an IV, and also um, something that activates all of them, which would be the photodynamic part. So uh, that's, uh, that is all still in my head. Uh, it's in a number of documents I've written as well. I just need to start putting it together. So that's the, <laughs> that's the future of Dr. Paul. Anderson. Yeah, it's a, that's uh, I have a few things I'm working on, but yes, that's uh, so some of the things actually I presented yesterday are, are little little snippets into that, yeah. like uh, some of the summaries. Um, but yeah, and and you know it's it's frustrating because these sorts of things, uh, you know, big difference. You listeners probably know for a supplement is regulated differently than sterile products, which are drugs. Uh, so it's, you could have the same, you know, hyperacin or curcumin as a supplement, different food chain in, right. in regulatory. Uh, once you make it sterile, make it injectable or something like that, uh, that, then it's a drug and that politics of access become more difficult that way, that you know, in, in, in most, in in North America, especially, it's, yeah, 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 politics. Yes, it's uh, it's more dicey. Yeah. Um, so oh, yeah. Well, Dr. Paul Anderson, it has been a true pleasure and honor to have you here. You and again, I I don't say this in a, um, you know, just in, in an inflate, inflationary way, but as a pioneer, you have and you continue to blaze new trails. You continue to build bridges with the science, not just between patients and, and doctors, but between naturopathic doctors and conventional doctors. So, you know, I, I, I just can't say enough um, accolades about your career and what you have coming. Uh, where can our listeners or other people find more about you and, and learn what you're doing and what you're talking about? Because we can sit here and get geeky and nerdy for a long time to come, yeah. and uh, we unfortunately have dinner to go to tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and my experience doing podcasts is at some point you have to yeah. stop talking, uh, it's, even though it's fun. Uh, so be, because uh, I, I sort of collect things to do over time, I realized at some point I had so many uh, things that I was doing in media and whatever, so I made a hub website. Uh, I, well, I didn't make it, I, my web guy made it. Uh, and so on there, uh, there's links to my podcast audio, which is on all the pod burners. There's links to the YouTube channel, which has a lot of the podcast videos, but then a lot of special content. Like I have uh, subfolders on mast cell activation and cancer and long COVID, all that business. Uh, and then I've, I've written a few books, um, so there's 
there's book links and then there's a bunch of other stuff. And then there's a practitioner link too, because I have a practitioner website that's for licensed folks. So if you want that, it's very simple. It's just D-R-A, like Dr. A, N-O-W, DrAnow.com. Easy. And that, that then is the gateway to whatever else I've done. <laughs> gateway to the mind of Dr. Paul it's, Anderson. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> if you just look at that website, you say, Ooh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they told me to stay busy when I was a kid and I believed them, so yeah. I've just done that, right? <laughs> well, yeah. You followed your parents' instructions yes, well. Yes, I took my parents' advice, yeah. yeah. Well, it's been my pleasure to host Dr. Paul Anderson, again, a true pioneer, a naturopathic physician, but actually a researcher, a scientist, a physician in the true sense of the word, healer, and he's a teacher, so you know, doctor in Latin. He is a, build, a bridge builder, and I look forward to watching the work that you do and the bridges you build, and it has truly been an honor to listen to you, to follow you, and I hope more of that to come. Thank you so much. My honor. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. So thank you for following our podcast here at Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear. Check out the, the website, which is drgoodyear.com. Pretty straightforward. Follow us on Instagram, dr.goodyear. Again, straightforward. We will post every day and we encourage questions. So please fire us some questions. And you know what? We may actually choose them and respond to them. So thank you for following. Look for more information coming to you soon.